Abbey Dental, sponsors of Women Today, for all aspects of today's dental care. Highly recommended throughout the Isle of Man. In early 2003, Kerry was 19 and living and working in the UK. As happened fairly frequently, she was on a works night out, but on this occasion, she became separated from her friends and while waiting in the taxi queue to go home, she was approached by a man who said he was a taxi driver. She got into his car and the man started driving, but it quickly became clear he wasn't going to take her home as he turned the opposite way. Kerry told him he'd gone the wrong way and he just laughed at her. She remembers trying the car door handle while the car was still moving with the intention of jumping out, but she was locked in. Screaming, knowing no one was coming, she remembers thinking he was going to kill her. She tried to fight him off, but he was stronger than her and pinned her down in the back of the car and raped her. And when she continued to resist, he hit her over the head. Kerry doesn't know how she got out of the car or how she got to where she was found later by a member of the public, but it's believed she was missing for a couple of hours. She reported the incident to police straight away, and although she says police officers dealt with her professionally, she did feel the police doctor who examined her was suggesting it was her own fault because she'd been drinking. It was five and a half years before Kerry's attacker was caught. He was arrested for another sexual offence and his DNA was matched to the DNA taken from Kerry on the night she was attacked. He was charged with rape and held on remand for five months until he appeared in court. After a six-day trial where Kerry gave evidence for nearly two days, the jury was sent out for less than an hour before they reached a verdict. The decision was unanimous and he was found guilty of the offence of rape. He served five years in a UK prison before being deported. One of the things that Kerry feels very strongly about is the notion of victim blaming. Did I at any point make myself a target? When, when I think back and you know, I think back to what I was wearing... If I went out now, I would wear the same. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be any different. Yeah, if, if you looked at any other 19-year-old girl out on that night, they would have been wearing the same. It, it's what people wear. Um, and it really shouldn't matter what you're wearing. There was nothing different that I'd done to anybody else waiting in that queue for the taxi. After the attack, Kerry says she found it very difficult to go back to what is typical teenage behaviour. I did used to have an issue over drinking, um, after it happened, I didn't drink alcohol at all for 18 months. Yeah, you, you can't put your life on hold. You know, people drink alcohol. You, you can try and restrict all this stuff in your life. It won't get you anywhere. It won't get you any further. It won't help you get over it. And when she got a new job here in the Isle of Man, Kerry says socialising with colleagues was also something she really struggled with. I did go out um, with them. But yes, it's always one of those things where it's like they don't know what I've been through. So are they thinking I'm a bit weird here when, you know, I'm pretty much giving people the cold shoulder because I'm not interested? And it has taken quite a while. I Obviously, I, would, I will chat to people if I meet people in a bar. Um, but I would not be comfortable with chatting to someone um, which I didn't know at all. It's different if they knew other people that I knew and I kind of knew they were a normal person. And since it can be really difficult to know what to say if you are a friend or a family member of someone who's gone through something like this, Kerry suggests this approach. I think if you know the person, you're going to know what type of person they are and how they respond to certain certain things. Um, I'm not easily offended, so... The number one thing is to just listen, let them tell you, don't interrupt them, 
don't put your own opinions in on it like well that's it we're going to march up to the police station right now let them make the decision i think sometimes saying less is more so you don't need to say something i think if it's someone listening that this has happened to and they're bottling it up they just need to tell people nation station thanks uh, now, there is a listener who's been in touch with us who's asked us not to use their name, uh, but they're seeking guidance about the following issue, Sarah. Uh, she says, I constantly worry that there's something wrong with me and frequently end up at the doctor and undergoing tests of some nature. After initial period of calm when all appears to be fine, it flares up again as I notice new symptoms. I don't imagine them. There is something to notice. But how do I know what's normal and not when there are so many illnesses and conditions to worry about? This constant preoccupation is ruining my life. And we will just restate, of course, this isn't an individual diagnosis, but let's talk about the general issue of health anxiety, Dr John. How common is this, would you say? I think it's pretty common, actually. Um, And it can uh, affect people to different degrees. Um, I was talking before we came on air to Sarah about this and saying, generally, I can usually pick up within about 30 seconds or a minute when somebody comes into the room who has a a health anxiety that that there is a problem here. Um, One of the important things for you to know is if you know, and most people do sort of know that they worry too much about their health, um, is that uh, any doctor worth his salt or indeed any clinician worth their salt is not going to poo-poo it. It's not going to make fun of you. It's not going to tell you away and pull you, go away and pull your socks up. Um, There is this historically stigmatized uh, condition called hypochondriasis and and people who uh, are labeled hypochondriac uh, feel inadequate or somehow um, uh, yeah just just uh, sort of um, judged really uh, because of it the reality is that health anxiety which is the new term I suppose is much more clear term really for what uh, hypochondriasis is uh, is a real thing it's it's a form of anxiety and we live in an age where health information is so accessible and um, uh, at the same time so difficult to interpret. We've talked many times, haven't we, Beth, about uh, Dr. Google and the dangers of going online and and, and looking stuff up. But the stuff is out there. And if you want to research what you think may be going on with you, there are myriad ways of doing so. The problem is that probably 50-60% of them are probably not very good sources of information. Um, so going on health forums, for example, looking at chat rooms, looking at um, sort of women's magazines, a lot of them, you will get a very skewed view. The other thing is that psychology, if you are anxious, will always lead you towards your fear. So you will tend to look things up, but you're filtering it all of the time through the window of your anxiety. And so you're going to look at and you're going to pick up the words that are going to feed your anxiety. So looking on your own for health information about something that you're frightened of or worried about is never I never say never in medicine is very rarely going to make you feel any better and is very likely to make you feel worse. So the best thing really is to go and see your doctor, go and see somebody uh, who you know and trust um, and talk to them about uh, this. Uh, Liam is with us in the studio this afternoon and Last time you were with us, Liam, you were you were really open about your own struggles, and which I think m- makes a massive difference for people listening to hear a man being so honest about that. Because I think typically, traditionally, we expect men not 
to feel this way? It's too easy to just not show emotion. And I'm quite... Having had a, a conversation with the cat meals that we've you had on the show recently, uh, I'm very much in touch with my feminine side. Um, in which case, you know, I'll watch a movie, I'll cry. In mm-hmm. fact, I'll cry before the wife cries sometimes. Um, and there's a list of movies that I'll never watch again because of it. Um, bit of a standing joke, but yeah, I mean, it's just my heart's on my sleeve. I, I can't hide emotion if I'm unhappy. I can put a face on and smile at everyone and say, yeah, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But actually... As, as it says on the on my t-shirt there, how are you? And I'll always say, yeah, I'm all right, thanks. But really the question is, no, really, how are you? And I think that's what really needs to come out of this as we now move forward with mental health is, is not just people saying, yes, I'm fine, when the truth is, no, they're not. There is that tradition again of the, the British stiff upper lip. Um, and some people, and I think, you know, it's, we need to talk about this, some people think perhaps we're talking too much about this now and people need to sort of have that idea of of just getting on with it and accepting you know life does have its ups and downs but if you kind of focus on every small issue that maybe that makes it worse in some ways yeah very much so and it's so easy just to turn around to somebody and say oh you know um pull yourself together or any other combination of phrases that can be used either at work or at school or in the house or you know everywhere really um, and sometimes it's not about that. Sometimes people just need to, I think the world moves so fast um, and there's so much going on at the same time that we as humans haven't adapted to the pace of life. And until we do, um, it, it's still got to keep going. So I think we need to talk about it more. So that it's just not that it's normal, but actually it's just easier to deal with. And you um, do have these running sessions, which um, you don't have to have any specific sort of issue in order to come along to those. But the real um, the real heart of it, I suppose, is bringing people together and also building a community, which is something we tend to have moved away from in recent years. Yeah, very much so. Having a conversation. I mean, that's that's a massive thing. We don't do that. I don't I've got a home phone. I've not used it for months because I don't ever Mm -hmm. phone anybody up. And yet when I was a teenager, that was the thing you did. You jammed the home phone up for hours and then talking to your mates you know then we moved to AOL and Hotmail Messenger Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and now it's just all WhatsApp or Snapchat and so the art of conversation is going to be gone soon enough and if we don't socialize I I think that actually that doesn't help people at all we're social animals and if we don't socialize then I think problems are going to get worse before they get better Our studio guest, Jenna O'Sullivan, um, is going to mark a very special day tomorrow. It would have been her son Ben's 18th birthday. And while he's sadly not here to celebrate, Jenna has organised an event for this weekend in his memory and it's going to raise a huge amount of money for a fantastic cause. And in fact, something that wouldn't actually probably exist if it hadn't been for Ben. Jenna, welcome to the show. Hi, um, tell us, uh, before we talk more about the, the charity, tell us a little bit about Ben, first of all. Um, well, he was born severely poorly with a condition called lysencephaly, which is um, a smooth brain. He was the only one on the island to, to have it, I think, even now there's only another person who's had it. Um, so he had severe disabilities, um, ongoing illnesses and everything. But one thing that was lacking over here was the lack of respite care for him. The hospital were great, everything else was good, but we just didn't have the care that we needed for him. 
or for the other kids on the island, really. So where did you have to go? Um, we had to travel to a place called Clare House on the Wirral. So as you can imagine, the upheaval of taking oxygen, medication, feeds another little boy <laughs> um, was really, really quite, you know, stressful, to say the least. So how did uh, Rebecca House, which is now the, the <laughs> place which offers this sort of care uh, for people over here, come about then? Well, it was just frustrating that we didn't have anything. So I just went to the local papers and explained my frustration um, and thought it was good that the children of the island needed to have something that they could go to, you know, for parents, for siblings, because it's not just about the individual who's poorly. You know, the children, brothers and sisters, need to have that sort of respite care. They need to have something where they can go and talk to people as well and there there was nothing like that here for them at all so even the siblings kind of get pushed back a little bit as well and obviously for parents having to do all that it's really really hard and sometimes just being able to talk to someone who's been through a similar experience and really gets what you're you're going through can make such a difference oh absolutely yeah because obviously now there's a lot of help Rebecca house do so much they have the counseling and they've got kids support groups there and stuff but beforehand there was nothing and you know you're kind of in your own little bubble with nobody to talk to or anything like that so it's good now that everything is happening so a housewife sharing her cleaning tips is one of the hottest things on social media right now How does she do it? And crucially, how can businesses benefit from this sort of thing in this ever-changing world to make sure they are targeting uh, their market, really? Alison Tia from Simply Marketing is with us. And uh, Mrs Hinch, the housewife, 3 million followers, does she? 1.5, actually. I had a little look. The other bit, actually, million. But that's not bad, is it? I had a quick check last night. But yeah, I mean, she's just taken the sort of the nation by storm. And somebody pointed her out to me a few weeks ago. I don't actually even do the whole cleaning thing but started to watch now I'm buying Zoflora till it's coming out of my ears it's like it's just the whole thing's ridiculous and it's all on it's all on Instagram stories okay. so she does she hardly does anything on a grid post but she's it's all in the stories it's it's a bit interesting but you know one second Jenny you were nodding furiously do you follow her I do yes. Mrs. yeah I do why cleaning tips <laughs> She's great. Does she make it easier? Does she make it cheaper? Does she make it faster? She just makes it sound better. (laughs) (laughs) And when you see her, she's really glam and gorgeous. So you think, yeah. I'll have a bit of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Right then. You just mentioned two words, Alison, there that I'd just like to to clarify. Grid and story. Okay. So let's, if I just backtrack slightly, the reason why Instagram stories is so massive is it because it's this year's big thing. So I think um, we it's like I said earlier that we have to be aware that the audience is moving. So they're moving off Facebook and towards Instagram. And so we have to be where our audience is. And, and, and whether we like it or not, that means we have to change and we have to sort of take a look at what we're doing and, and, and just learn new things. Instagram is the thing that you need to be learning if you're going to be learning something. And then the biggest tip, obviously, at the moment is the stories. So when you look at an Instagram, so I'm looking at my Instagram okay. now. I've got my Instagram mm-hmm. open. We've all got yep, the Instagrams ready. over. I just want to say before we move on that Ben Hartley um, <clears throat> knows how to do stories and feels that he has conquered the digital equivalent of Everest. But, right. Okay. Well, it does take some, uh, to be honest, I'm not going to say it's easy because it's not. And especially if you don't like putting yourself out there, um, 
The whole thing about social media is it's, so, it's a social platform. I think that's what we forget. So it's not a broadcast medium. It's not It's not sort of day-to-day press coverage. It's not day-to-day um, press releases or website copy or formal. It's just downright social. Okay. So it's just fun. And right. so you have to just let go, all right? Okay, I'm letting Breathe, go. Breathe, let letting go, go, chill, okay? And you have to just right. go with it when it comes to stories. I am zen. Stories, okay? I am breath. Zen. Okay. Right, so the grid are the squares that sit underneath. Mm-hmm. So grid. that's the grid, okay? okay. Grid. Mm-hmm. And some people are, when, when Facebook, when Instagram started, it was only the grid. And it was a very, very precious place and the most beautiful, beautiful photographs and it was the place to be. So the, in, the true Instagrammers are very, very snobby about that. So you've got to be a bit careful on your, on your grid. But then Facebook came along and bought Instagram and whipped the idea from Snapchat for stories. So Instagram didn't have stories before. Snapchat pinched the idea. Well, Facebook pinched it from Snapchat and they put them in and they've become super, super popular. So stories, when you click the home feed, little house in the bottom, little bottom house. left, yeah. Okay. They run in the circles along the top. Righty ho. Okay. And anybody with a story in there has a red circle round it. Okay. Okay. And when you click that, those are the sort of the little bits and pieces and the little 15 second clips that make up stories. Okay. Now, the whole idea is they last for only 24 hours and then they disappear. So that's sort of a way to relax about it a bit because they're not up there very long. You can chill a bit on them. You know, it's not a, it's not a big deal. That's what you're supposed to tell yourself. Okay, yeah, I'm just, I'm just it's a coach. It's a mantra piece. <laughs> it's a mantra, yeah. <laughs> and um, and so you put your stories in there, but you create lots of them. Right. Because it's a continuous story. Like a storybook. Like a storybook. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Today's guest has played at least two key roles here in the Isle of Man. The first, a career which spanned over 30 years and saw him involved in some of the most significant events of recent times, and the other as a member of Timwald. Dudley Butt, former police detective chief inspector and MLC, welcome to the Conister Rock. Um, Thank you, Beth. As ever, you have suggested that it was fairly difficult picking your music choices. We tend to limit you to five. We've allowed you six. Thank you. Um, has music always played an important part in your life? Uh, yes, certainly in the uh, 60s when everything sort of burst into colour from the black and white days we used to endure. And music was one of the main factors that changed people's lives. And I mentioned you are a, you were an MLC. We'll come to that a little bit more later. Was that always the plan? Did you always want to get involved in politics here in the island? Yes, I remember as a child listening to the 1959 election on the radio and um, the Tories got in again and I was quite upset. I didn't know why. Um, and I realised I had an interest and then I sort of followed politics from then onwards. And I remember being on the beat in 1966 uh, on the election night again and I was standing outside a house in Hillary Park hiding in their garden looking through the window looking at the results on the television screen um, so I've always had an interest in politics and, and I did plan after I retired from the police to maybe double in it and eventually did get there. Well we will talk more about uh, your careers a little bit later but first of all take us back to where it all began because actually you described yourself as unfortunately English. <laughs> Yes, I'd like to be Manx. I think it's great to have a Manx heritage and say I am a Manx person with Manx blood and the Manx, uh, all the all the stuff that goes with being a, from a culture that is separate to England. Um, my parents actually 
and my grandparents came over here in the late 40s, early 50s to farm and uh, we came with them. I came as a four-year-old, four or five-year-old. So I've been here since I was four or five, but I still am not Manx and can't claim that genetic her- heritage, which I'd like to. I'm sure you can't be described as a come-over, certainly now, though. But, oh, you know. Um, uh, I'm guessing then you don't really remember much before you moved over here. I do, yes. I remember the village I grew up in and the, and, um, uh, the places we used to live. We used to live in a farm in, in Essex, North Essex, and um, a little village on the coast, very similar in a way to Laxey, except no hills, but a fishing village and a farming village. And then we moved to the Isle of Man and moved to Balaric, which was like, to us, it was like living in Switzerland when we first arrived, all the hills, etc. And uh, quite high up in the Balaric and grew up there in the wild and windy place, which is known as God's country to us who live there. Um, and you, you say those years were, were character building. Yes, we, we lived on a farm. Um, the farmhouse didn't have electricity, didn't have water. Um, we didn't get that until I was about 12 or so. So we grew up with candles and lamps. We grew up with a well in the yard. We got the water from a pump in the yard. Uh, we had to hand milk the cows every day. Initially, we didn't even have a tractor. We just had a horse. So we, my first couple of years, I remember, we used to farm with a horse, plowing with a horse, etc. And then... Um, as a farm boy, you know, a son, you had to do a certain amount of work. So I had to milk cows every evening, along with my, my mum and dad, and uh, it was just what life was like. How often have you regaled your children with those tales? Pretty well every day. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, there ever any inclination, um, from your point of view, of carrying on in the farming industry, or did that sort of hardship really put you off, do you think? It wasn't hardship. It was. It, there were lots of places like that in the Alamand, and lots of people didn't have a lot of money, and they, they got by. It was, it was really um, subsistence farming. Um, when, I, when I was at school, I had no idea what I was going to do. I sort of presumed I would become a farmer, but um, it wasn't big enough to sustain extra people, so I didn't go that way. So you mentioned school there. You went to Laxey Primary School and then Ramsey Grammar. What sort of pupil was little Dudley Butt? Um, I'm not sure, really. I do have lots of knowledge in my head. Um, I got into the A form at Ramsey, which was a surprise to me, and um, plodded along in the middle of the road, really. It was only after I left I realised that I could have done a lot better. And later on, other exams after that I did, you know, I, I prospered in the exams after that. I realised what a what an asset my memory was for passing exams, etc. So I didn't make the most of it, but I, but I did... Um, have an education and a good education I think at both Laxey and Ramsey Uh, Let's take a break then for your first piece of music, what have you chosen and why here? I've chosen um, Telstar by the Tornadoes which was the first record I bought and the background to it is really that um, when I grew up in Laxey I was very interested in science fiction and astronomy I read a book by a man called Sir James Jeans called The Stars and Their Courses so astronomy became a big thing I used to stand outside in the farm in 1957 and watch the uh, first satellites going over, the Russian satellites, the one with the dog in, with myself and my dad, we were able to spot it and watch it go over. Um, we watched the Aurora Borealis very often in those days. It was quite common in the fift- late 50s. Um, and then when I was 16, I left home uh, a week after my 16th birthday, joined the police, was living in digs, and I went away on a course, the cadet course, to Liverpool, to Mother Avenue, and I was on that course, and they just uh, launched the Telstar satellite in July of that year. I remember seeing the first transmission from Goonhilly down, 
and there was a big thing on television then, the first live pictures from the USA, and this record was a child star after that. And I bought it in uh, Nems Record Store in Liverpool uh, while I was on that cadet course, and that takes me back to those very early days.